This is Radio Maria. A very warm welcome this afternoon. I'm Edmund Zengeni and this is Credo. And for all our regular listeners, it's our dear friend, it's Mr. Derek Williams here again once more. Good afternoon, Derek. Good afternoon, listeners. And it's great to have this opportunity to teach you again about the Sabbath rest. Hopefully you're enjoying the teaching. In this session, we're going to look at the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So my Bible is opened on John's Gospel, uh, John 19, um, just after he speaks to his mother. Behold your mother, and at that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there, so he put a sponge full of the vinegar on his and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now if I was to flick back to Genesis 2 verse 1 once again it is finished God had finished his work of creating and he contemplated his creation Jesus has finished his work of redemption and salvation and he can now in a sense rest so he dies on the cross and his head tilts forward and i cast your minds to matthew chapter 8 around verse 20 where jesus well let me let me actually get the one i'm looking at mary carcass at the moment so let me actually open up on matthew 8 a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So that was when he was in his earthly journey. He had nowhere that he would call home at this point in time. And here's what Father Mary Karkis teaches us about this in Fire of Mercy, Heart of the Word. For anyone who's got these, this is the first volume, and it's on page 354. The invitation, the intimate revelation, is also a sharp warning. Can you do it? Can you follow me as you say, but only me even if that means i have nothing to reward you with except myself are you sure you can wholly dispense with any ulterior expectations things you imagine i can give to you the son of man does not have where he may lay his head the same self-possessed and imperious voice who pronounced the sermon on the mount the same powerful voice whose one word of authority sufficed to heal a paralytic 
is the one that here reveals the divine logic. To be divine requires us to be homeless in this world, to be without a specific home, that is. Have we not seen Jesus moving about Palestine with the same creative freedom, the same commanding gesture as the word that created the universe in Genesis? He who has the earth as his footstool cannot be housed under any one given roof. The measure of Jesus' divine authenticity is precisely his poverty, his inability to settle down in one specific place, human place or situation. The Lord of the universe, the one who is infinitely above his creation, moves within his creation as a stranger. The way of deification, therefore, leads us too into the desert, into the land of material nothingness, where God may be all in all. So when a son of man is on earth doing his public ministry, he has nowhere that he calls home, because his homeland is in heaven. And I often say this to people, I often quote St. Paul's letter to the Philippines, you are citizens of heaven. And I was having an interesting dialogue with my son the other week. And he was saying, Dad, there's no aliens in the Bible, are there? And I said, yes, there are. And I turned to St. Peter's letters. And Peter writes, you are aliens. We are the aliens. This is alien territory for us. We should not try to turn the world into heaven. We should just try to turn our hearts into heaven. We shouldn't try and make our situation in life any more comfortable based on human measures. We should keep our hearts focused upon the kingdom of God, recognizing that Jesus gives us absolutely everything we need to make this earthly journey, but not everything that we want. He gives us everything we need. Now Jesus himself says there, when someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus says, well, I've got nowhere to go, except for to the cross. And his mother sends him there. So here we now go back to John 19. Jesus says it is finished and he gives up his spirit. Once again, look at the connection with the Genesis account where Jesus completes the act of creating. The Trinity complete the act of creating. It is finished. And just before that, they had breathed into the man the breath of life. So there was this connection between creation and redemption. God completing the task and God breathing forth the Spirit. And that breathing forth. So Jesus takes away the sin and then breathes out the Spirit 
which is giving us new life. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And then Jesus rests his head upon the cross in the sleep of death at the beginning of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is literally just beginning when Jesus can now rest the sleep of death. And the centurion takes his spear and pierces his side and out comes the blood and water, completely emptying the sacred heart of Jesus. And at this point, Jesus is taken down from the cross, placed into the arms of his mother. So his first place of rest is the cross. His second place of rest is his mother's lap, probably where he hasn't rested for 30 years. He's now resting. His body is now resting in his mother's lap. And I would encourage you to do the same. I would encourage you not just to recite your rosaries, not just to do your devotions, not just to do your acts of consecration and your Hail Marys, your Magnificats. I would strongly encourage you to take some time to join Jesus in his mother's lap because Our Lady wants nothing more than for her children to come bouncing onto her lap to relax, to rest, to gaze upon her beauty, to draw from her bounteous graces. And we do this just by sitting on the lap of the mother and letting her minister to us. And I'm really trying to press home this for the last few weeks, this whole idea of a covenant day when we rest as the people of God, when we switch off our communication links and we just turn off from all the duties that we have to perform those other six days. This is the day when the duty changes direction. All the other six days, generally the duty is for the glory of God, but aimed at others. Aimed at the other is a horizontal duty to many degrees. On a Sunday, our duty becomes vertical. It's directed to God. And the beauty of taking this time out with God is that everyone benefits, not just us. Everyone benefits because we are resting in his presence. So therefore the church's heart beats more vibrantly. The fire in our body burns more passionately because we have people who are obeying the commandments. Had you ever considered that the commandment for the Shabbat comes ahead of the commandment for adultery, theft, murder, but carries the same punishment. So if you commit adultery or murder, you'll be stoned to death. If you break Shabbat, you'll be stoned to death. And yes, that is in the book of Numbers, where a man was stoned to death at God's command for breaking the Sabbath. 
But there's another form of death here, it's the interior death. And at the moment I meet many Christians who are really suffering interiorly. They've got comfortable lives, they have money, they have possessions, a certain amount of wealth, and, you know, houses, cars, etc. And they're living their Catholic faith to a certain extent. But very few, very few, that I know, obey Shabbat. Very few. It's almost like working is inevitable and virtuous, which is nothing but a deception when it comes to the Lord's Day. Then when I converse with such people, and if you have a conversation about the interior life, you generally find, and I say this is a generalisation, that people are suffering from anxieties, worries, compulsions, fears, um, all sorts of strange thought processes, and a very poor prayer life. And I know this is a generalisation, but this is what I have actually encountered. And there's a consistent theme. They do, they do not rest. They do not obey the Lord's day. Well, it's a, it's a sin, isn't it? <laughs> to do certain things on the day of rest. You're breaking a commandment. And the consequence is going to be a lack of interior peace. We're breaking the commandment. Think about it, you know. We might pride ourselves. Oh, I obey the commandments. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen from anyone. I've never slandered anybody. I worship God alone. But do you keep his Sabbaths? Do you keep his Sabbaths? Because they are the top, they're the fourth. They're very near the top. These Sabbaths are very important. And if we're not going to spend that time in prayerful, restful contemplation in the presence of God, what else are we going to do that's going to benefit or help us? So the Sabbath descends on Good Friday, AD 33. Jesus dies on the cross and is laid to rest in his mother's arm, arms. And then Joseph of Arimathea and um, Nicodemus Take away the body of Jesus, a new tomb, and lay Jesus there. And it says in verse 42 of John 19, Because the Jewish de of the de Jewish death preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So the third place that Jesus rests when he has completed his mission, his body now rests in a cold, dark tomb. That's where he is placed. But what's he doing? What is he doing now? You all know the narrative. I don't even have to tell you. He's doing what he always does on Shabbat. He preaches the gospel. He sets the captives free. He brings light to those in darkness. He brings freedom to those in prison. Peter picks this up where I left off. Okay, I talked about Jesus dying on the cross, 
and then been laid to rest in his mother's arms and in the tomb. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the souls in prison, who formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. So when Jesus died on the cross, he went to preach, among others, to the souls who died in the great flood at the time of Noah. He went to bring them the good news of salvation. Now I want you to think about it, just picture the scene. Um, Jesus, you know, that these souls, so the souls who died at the flood, and then you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the other righteous souls of the Old Testament, all waiting in that prison, as it were, in the dark, for thousands of years. But they can't count them thousands of years, because for them, it's just a perpetual purifying darkness. There is no light, there is no sunrise, sunset, there is no change in the weather, there is no harvest, there is no daily meal, no drink, there is no water to quench the thirst. It's just a consistent, dark, painful place to be. And you could say for thousands of years, but in fact, for an eternal moment, they are there in the darkness, waiting. And then one day, one Shabbat, they see in the distance a light. And as they watch, the light grows brighter and brighter and brighter, slowly filling the area where they are. And then they see the second person of the Trinity with his wounds and he proclaims the Evangelium to these souls, some of whom prophesied his coming, some of whom knew he was coming. Abraham knew that in the flesh the person stood before him was his descendant, while at the same time his creator. And they stand there and they hear the gospel being proclaimed on the Shabbat. Just as when Jesus was walking around Israel and would proclaim the gospel on Shabbat, now he is down in the darkness, down in what we would call the realm of the dead or hell, preaching the gospel to the souls in prison before leading them out in triumphal procession to heavenly glory. Some of whom, it was said of some of them, that they rose from the dead and appeared to people in Jerusalem. So this is Jesus once again on Shabbat. Shabbat. Why were those people in prison? Peter says this. 
who formerly did not obey. These were the people who heard the good news that Noah proclaimed and did not obey. He told them there was going to be a flood. He was building an ark and they didn't obey. So they perished in the flood. But Jesus is able to save them. Jesus comes to them after the flood to rescue them and to lead those who want it into heavenly glory. Now I've been talking for just over 20 minutes so I think that's a good place to pause and hand over the reins back to the studio for our first song of the afternoon. shouted but I stayed there on the floor frozen in the terror that rose and filled my brain for I knew what they intended I could not face the pain then soldiers came into the cell and they dragged me to the yard they threw me down before a cross and brought the whip down hard Carry it, they shouted, as I struggled to my feet. I put my shoulder under it and dragged it to the street. I stumbled through a wall of screams as they drove me through the gate. It seemed that thousands lined the streets, their voices filled with hate. Like a wolf pack in the night that moves in for the kill. They closed the gap and fought us. We started up the hill And it seemed I'd barely reached the top When they grabbed me from behind They threw the cross down under me And tied the ropes that bind The arms close to the beams As they nailed the feet and hands And they raised the cross up in the air And dropped it in its of pain I saw the cross there next to mine there were people all around it so I looked to read the sign it was nailed there up above his head so the world could see the news that the man who seemed so helpless there was the king of all the Jews And the crowd that stood around his cross made jokes about his name. They shouted, laughed, and spat on him. So I joined in the game. I said, hey, if you're the king, why don't you get us down from here? But the taunt just sounded hollow. It echoed in my ears. 
Cause he looked at me with eyes that seemed to reach into my heart They shone a light on all my lies and tore my life apart There was more that lay behind that gaze than simply blood and clay But knowing was too much for me I had to look away But I chanced another look at him While he was looking down Where the soldiers who just crucified us Drank there on the ground And although he spoke them quietly Somehow his words came through He said, Father, please forgive them They don't know what they And as if they'd heard him speak, the crowd began to roar, whipped to frenzy by the priests who urged them on to more. But the worse the accusations, now the plainer I could see the guilt of the accusers, not the one there next to me. But the man upon the other cross began to curse and swear and his voice was filled with venom as he hurled it through the air all the horror that was in him and it laid his life to waste came out in every syllable he flung in Jesus' face and Jesus only looked at him but something rose inside of me in spite of all that watched us there it couldn't be denied because his righteousness and innocence were shining bright and strong I just couldn't keep my silence If that cursing still went on I cried out, don't you fear the wrath of God Even at the end You'll curse us both into the pit Is that what you intend? We're only getting what we're due We've sinned our whole lives long But don't you talk to him that way Cause he's done nothing wrong Then with all my courage In a voice not quite my own I asked him, Lord, remember me when you come into your throne He answered me And even then his love was undisguised He said before the sun has set today You'll be with me In paradise Shouts and curses did not stop even when the sunlight ceased But somehow in the midst of it, my soul had been released And though the agony continued, it was still too small a price To be allowed to hear those words and to die 
beside the Christ. Thank you very much. Now, um, in John's Gospel, in other parts of the Gospel, John will spend an entire chapter on the happenings on Shabbat. 
But here, John gives it no thought whatsoever. None. Even though he knows Jesus had descended into that prison to preach the gospel, John spends no time on it at all. Jesus is buried in the tomb. It doesn't even mention the Sabbath. It just says the Jewish day of preparation. John has never mentioned that before in his gospel, to my knowledge. The Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So the Shabbat is, if you like, over. And then John immediately launches in. They've buried Jesus, they've closed the tomb, and then it says, now on the first day of the week. So John immediately, after, the, after Jesus has died, the Old Testament is, if you like, fulfilled, and the New Testament begins, and John proclaims it on the first day of the week. In the, that's the Jewish language, on the first day. Um, Yom Echod. Yom, meaning day. Echod, meaning one. Day one. What happens on day one? The, the Hebrew word is Vahi Or. Let there be light. And the light of the world rises. What's the significance? What's the connection? Simple. Now we have the Lord's Day. We have a new Shabbat, if you like. The Lord's Day. The new day of rest. And what's Jesus going to do on this new day of rest? He's been known to preach to the souls in prison. And now he rises up. And in John, what, John 20, verse 15. Um, the, well, let's go through the narrative a little bit, because it's a sensational narrative. The, the, in verse 13, Mary is there, Mary Magdalene, and they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but did not know it was Jesus. Who does she think it is? Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? He doesn't say Mary. He says, Woman. Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener. Okay. She thinks he's the gardener. Why does John pop that in? Think about all the tiny references that John makes to the Old Testament. Even the final words on the cross, it is finished. And breathing his last. There we have Genesis 2 verse 7. And Genesis 1 where it is completed. So what's going on here? Well, Adam was the gardener. And here is Jesus. Ecce homo. Behold, Adam. And he has reversed the situation that Adam caused. Adam sinned and was thrown out of the garden. Jesus has taken away the power of sin and redeemed us and opened up the pathway back into the garden. And Mary says him, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes, John writes, 
supposing him to be the gardener. And in a sense he is. He is the new Adam, tending to the garden. Scott Hahn writes about the words used to describe tending to the garden in the book of Genesis. And he says that the words used is two or three different words. They're the same words used in the Torah to describe the work of the priest in the temple. So here we have Jesus now, the gardener, who has come to tend the garden. What is that garden? What does Teresa of Havilah talk about? And as the scriptures do, it's the garden of our soul. It isn't just good, just enough for Jesus to rise from the dead and to say, the power of sin has been destroyed, folks. I'll see you in a few thousand years. And off he goes to heaven. No, he is Adam. And he's going to tend to the garden, which is your soul. He has come to clear out all the weeds, all the brambles, all the thorns, all that destroys. He's come to clear out the destructive stuff. And the foxes that destroy the vineyard. And the wolves that want to kill the sheep. He's come to get rid of them all. To wage war on them all. So that you, the garden, can be a well-watered garden. Whose waters never fail. And whose fruitfulness is for all eternity. Because of your communion with the Messiah. So Mary meets the gardener of her soul. And she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me. Why not? But he says, because I have not yet ascended. If Mary clings to Jesus as he stood stands before her now, she's clinging to the physical part of Jesus. If you like, that his humanity, resurrected or not. She's clinging to, the, to what she sees. But Jesus wants her to have him in deep, spiritual union with her he's the bride sorry she's the bride he's the groom and jesus wants for his union with mary to penetrate to the very core of her being so that she can cling to him as a bride clings to her spouse and here jesus says don't cling to me i've yet to ascend when i've ascended then we can have a deeper communion than you can have with any other earthly creature or any earthly goods or anything on this planet. You can have a deeper cleaving, a more powerful cleaving than anything else you could ever experience. And then he says, um, uh, da, da, da. Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and said to the disciples, I have seen 
the Lord. Don't forget, this is the Lord's Day. What does that mean? Well, Mary is proclaiming the Evangelium. Or in Greek, the Evangelium. Mary is proclaiming the glorious gospel of the resurrection. So she's taken on because Jesus has sent her. She says, God, Jesus says, go to my brethren and here's what you're going to say to them. So Mary is sent, like the blind man, she is sent on the Lord's day. The blind man was sent on Shabbat and he was healed. Mary is sent on the Lord's day and her eyes are opened. The blind man saw Jesus and worshipped. Mary sees Jesus and she becomes the apostle to the apostles. The first witness of the resurrection. I think it was Eve Congar who wrote about this, but I think it's also in Vatican II documents. Don't quote me on that one. I've read it so many times and I can't think of the first one. But it's a teaching of the church that the first witness to the resurrection is a laywoman. And nothing can change that. The first witness to the resurrection is a laywoman. And she becomes the apostle to the apostles. Now you might say, hold on a minute, this is just a short narrative and this happened 2,000 years ago. Yes, but this is the inspired word of God and the actions of Jesus, the words of Jesus. And they are new every day. So even if it happened 15 million years ago, it is new today. I'm going to head back to the studio to regather my thoughts as we build up this beautiful resurrection narrative. And we're going to have our second song of the afternoon. I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight It was my turn Till I made I was breathing but not Alive. All my failures I tried to hide It was my dream yeah. Till I made You called my name And I
This is headed up. Jesus gives the disciples the power to forgive sins. Now, if you go back to Luke 4, where we were talking a few weeks ago, and how Jesus proclaims the Jubilee year, and he gives power to forgive sins, or he has the power to forgive sins, to wipe out the power of sin, and it's on Shabbat. Now, Jesus gives his apostles, the disciples, the power to forgive sins. He, the, he gives them the very same power that he is ministering under. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Okay, John's really nailing that. The first day of the week. It was in 20 verse 1, and now it's in 20 verse 19. The doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Don't forget, these are the disciples. <laughs> You know, if we were reading it in the Greek language, you'd see the difference. Because Mary has been sent and is therefore an apostle. The disciples have not yet been sent and therefore they're still disciples. They are Mathetes. She is apostolou. It's quite breathtaking, isn't it, to think that Mary... The, the so-called prostitute, the one who's liberated from all those demons, who hasn't really been that prominent in the Gospels. The disciples have been everywhere with Jesus. They, you, know, you even know several of them individually and their characters and so on. But they've been everywhere with Jesus. And they're still called the disciples. And yet here's this beautiful woman 
this incredible, extraordinary woman. And Jesus makes her the first apostle, if you like. The apostle to go and preach the gospel to the apostles. Wow. <clears throat> Jesus comes and stands among them and says, well, we've got four words in English. Peace be with you. One word in Judaism, shalom. So the proclamation of the kerygma, the gospel, the the the, the kerygma, the the absolute core foundation gospel message. Before you get into all the complicated theology, the absolute core kerygma that Jesus proclaims is one word, shalom. And then. He shows them his hands and his sides. The disciples can see this is Jesus. This is the one that we saw dying on the cross. His disciples were full of joy when they saw the Lord, just as Mary did. They saw the Lord. And Jesus repeats, Shalom. As the Father has sent me, Apostolo, so I, Apostolo, you. When he said this, he did what he did with Adam thousands of years beforehand he ruacked on them he breathed on them and he says receive the Holy Spirit those of you who are out there listening to this teaching I'm going to ask Jesus Father in the name of Jesus will you send your son to everyone who is listening to this and will you call on him to breathe on everyone and I say to you all the words of Jesus receive the Holy Spirit receive the Holy Spirit let Jesus breathe on you and bring your soul to that place of rest and stillness receive let Jesus breathe upon you and Jesus says this to his apostles if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven if you retain the sins of any they are retained and therein Jesus establishes the sacrament of confession he doesn't have to do a lot to do these things This is what it says in my footnotes. Immediately following the resurrection, the ultimate sign of victory over sin and death, Christ instituted the sacrament of penance and reconciliation by giving the apostles and their successors the power to forgive sins in his name. Breathing on the apostles, sometimes referred to as John's Pentecost, was a foreshadowing of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Thus they received the Holy Spirit from Christ and were empowered to act in his name. For his apostles, the first ordained priests, the power to forgive sins was a vital part of their role of sanctifying the people. In sending them forth into the world, he charged them with continuing his mission of spiritual healing through the sacraments of baptism and confession and penance, belief in the forgiveness of sins is an essential, essential statement of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which are portrayed in the Church's liturgy.
quite a lot there but that's basically saying that just by Jesus doing these small actions he institutes sacraments which endure for thousands of years he's not like us where our work can be just burned up the moment we die Jesus institutes a, yeah, an eternal not an eternal sacrament but a sacrament which has eternal ramifications Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Mary Magdalene, I have seen the Lord. The disciples, we have seen the Lord. Thomas refuses to believe. But nonetheless, the witness, the witness, folks, the witness, the core witness is, I have seen God. That's the core witness. And that runs through John's Gospel. If I was to turn back to the very first chapter of John's Gospel, I'm taking a risk here because, you know, um, I haven't prepared this. But this is the, the first disciples of Jesus. And in verse 32, verse 37, the two disciples heard him and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said, who, what do you seek? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said, come and see. So there he is, right at the beginning of the Gospel. And in verse 32, this is the testimony of the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven and remain in him. So John has, sorry, verse 34, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Folks, I want to encourage you because often when we're trying to evangelize people, we get wrapped up in their ridiculous arguments if they're against the faith. Sometimes all we have to say is, look, I have seen the Lord. And I believe. And that's that. And I can introduce you to Jesus. This is basic cliff face core evangelization. The personal encounter with Christ. And if you're encountering Christ every Sabbath day, every Lord's Day, if you're encountering him, whether it's in the Eucharist, whether it's in the sacrament of penance, whether it's in your own prayer time, whether it's gazing adoringly at the Eucharist, no matter how you're encountering Jesus, you're encountering Jesus. And that encounter is the most powerful weapon in your evangelization, because no one can take it away from you. You can say, I have encountered the living God. And that's it. No argument. Now, when you proclaim that, don't forget, okay, so you've got two, two, arms, two armies here. The army of atheism. Let's take that one for example. When they proclaim their messages, which are generally scientific, generally have a worldly wisdom, they're doing it with no anointing. It is purely from their intelligence and their knowledge base. That's all it is. And for a lot of them, that knowledge base is very shaky and is based on theory, not reality, not facts. It's just based on theory, often full of lies. 
often. And I have to say it's a sweeping generalization in some way, but the ones I've watched on YouTube, you sometimes think, nope, that's not true. That's not true. Especially the things they say about the Catholic Church. It's all lies. There's a lot of lies in there about what they say about the Catholic Church. Then you come on and you bear witness using the weapon that Jesus has given you, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit. Their words are empty, found without foundation, deceitful. You will be proclaiming the word of truth. You'll be proclaiming a word of fire. You'll be proclaiming a word of testimony. And you'll be taking it from a place of peace and rest. The word you speak will pierce their heart. The word the atheists spoke entertained their intelligence. Your word will bring them back to life from death. And all you need is to stop trying to argue this case using the same weapons as the enemy and to just stand on the core principles of the gospel. Don't go into a complicated message, no need. Often when I'm evangelizing, I pull back from trying to sort of speak into people's life issues. And I just say, look, Jesus is alive and he wants to encounter you. And then I can pray with them if they're willing. And I tell you, I've done this so many times down at the local shrine, when I'm overseas, wherever I am. Just putting a hand on the person's shoulder or on their neck and praying a simple prayer. And I found it's very efficacious. Sometimes when I get praying, I get into very long and convoluted prayer. I kind of get lost in the prayer, you know. And you're sort of praying for all these weird and wonderful things for this person. And that's good. But sometimes I just stand there before somebody who hasn't quite got their face together. And I put my hands on their shoulders and I'll just be... Oh, Father, will you please bless this person in the name of Jesus, your son? Will you please let them know you're near them? So the prayer just gets cut right back and becomes the utter simplicity, the basic prayer. Now, I want to do this basic, simple prayer with all of you, okay? I want to give you the prayer, the resurrection prayer. I have seen the Lord. That's the prayer I want to make. So, Studio, if you wouldn't mind putting on our final song for today and see if I can speak over that final song a little bit. And I'm just going to proclaim the fiery living kerygma over your lives and into your heart. Let the Word of God, as John Paul II said, let the Word of God in all of its power penetrate your heart. So Jesus, you say, peace be with you. You speak peace. Jesus, you want to speak, so I'll speak with you. And I speak over everyone's lives who is listening to this. I speak shalom to your heart. Peace. Peace in the name of Jesus to your heart. Peace. Peace. And Lord Jesus, will you open the eyes of everybody who is listening to this? Heavenly Father, open everyone's eyes and everyone's heart. Open them wide open. And let them see Jesus. Let them see you, Lord Jesus. Let every one of them, everyone who's listening to this, let them have that personal encounter with you. 
that radical transforming touch. Thank you, Father, for your teaching. And I'm just going to let the song play out. Just listen to the words and let the musician, the worship leader, minister to your soul, your personal encounter with Christ. Amen. She told us where she'd been. She said they've moved him in the night. None of us knows where. The stone's been rolled away. And now his body isn't there. We both ran toward the garden. Then John ran on ahead. We found the stone in the empty tomb. Just the way that Mary said. But the winding sheet they'd wrapped him in was just an empty shell. How or where they'd taken him was more than I could tell. Something strange had happened there, but just what I didn't know. John believed a miracle, but I just turned to go. Circumstance and speculation couldn't lift me very high Cause I'd seen them crucify him Then I saw him die Back inside the house again The guilt and anguish came Everything I'd promised him Just added to my shame Cause when at last it came the choices I denied I knew his name Even if he was alive It wouldn't be the same Suddenly the air was filled with strange and sweet perfume Light that came from everywhere Drove shadows from the room stood before him with his arms held open wide I fell down on my knees and just clung to him and cried he raised me to my feet and as I looked into his eyes love was shining out from him like sunlight from the skies Guilt and my confusion disappeared in sweet release And every fear I'd ever had just melted into peace Heaven's gates are open wide. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive, and I'm forgiven. Heaven's gates are open.